You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael. Hey, Dan. Your school year has ended, hasn't it? It, Yeah, it ended on Monday, but I've been going to school every day since. You're that kid that keeps going to school even after it's ended, aren't you? I know. You think I should stop. Bob, we're actually <laughs> we're working on revamping our U.S. Uh, history curriculum, our U.S. 1. When should U.S. history start? I can tell you when it usually starts in textbooks. Where? I would say the most common year is 1492. Oh, when Columbus sailed the ocean, that's, which that's, I imagine was... I think that's the, the story we've been telling children and, and then throughout their K-12 school, isn't it? Is that that's where yeah. history starts. That's interesting because obviously it doesn't really hit on, you know, the people who were there before because there were, you know, people living in the colonies before the colonies were colonies, right? Yeah, the whole discover the new world <laughs> language is, what would you say, super Eurocentric yes. and uh, has a huge blind spot. So luckily we have somebody here today who can probably fill us in on a lot of problems uh, in the U.S. history, world history, other curriculum, particularly pertaining to indigenous peoples. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. So we've got Sarah Shear. Um, she's at Penn State Altoona campus. Did I say that right? You did. It's fun to say. Altoona. It is. It, it is. is fun to say. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Sarah, your background in education? Sure. So before I became a teacher educator, I taught middle school and high school social studies, mainly world history, civics, uh, current events um, in Connecticut. Um, but before that, I worked in a number of different jobs. So I've had quite the journey into becoming um, the person who's here talking with you today. So a big part of my transition from working in Capitol Hill to doing corporate PR and then becoming a teacher and then a teacher educator is an interest and concern about how the story of our nation is taught um, in our schools. And particularly when, as you were saying in your intro, when U.S. history starts. So maybe we could start, maybe you could start there and tell us, Sarah. <laughs> when does it start? Yeah, not, not only when does it start, but when are til- children taught in school curriculum that it starts? So <laughs> depending on who you ask and you know, if we go to what many people consider to be called Turtle Island and not the United States, the history of the people and the cultures and the languages and the land itself goes back uh, tens of thousands of years. What we tend to see when we look at elementary curriculum is that U.S. history starts with the myth of the land bridge bringing of people to the continent. From Asia to, to right, Canada. Right. And um, very recently, over the last couple of years, a number of, of scholars and researchers from various backgrounds like linguistics and genetics and, and cultural studies have blown the land bridge myth sky high. 
And so the fact that elementary students are learning the land bridge theory as fact is, our, is one of our first problems. And then we usually jump straight to Columbus, which is our next big problem, <laughs> and completely erases the fact that millions of people were here living in very culturally dynamic, politically active, economically interesting nations having relationships with one another. And actually, there's evidence that indigenous nations traded and had relationships with um, China, with explorers from northern Europe long before Columbus even decided to get lost and not get, ask for directions on where he was trying to get to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a big problem in, across the curriculum, the way Columbus is taught. And um, I know Columbus has kind of become like a focal point for a lot of the problems about how indigenous peoples are taught and about how the perspectives our history are taught. I know uh, Howard Zinn's first chapter in A People's History was always, uh, the first time I read that, that was a game changer for me. Um, I kind of known things, but he kind of not only talks about um, the problems with, with telling the story from that perspective, but really delves into what is history in that chapter. So if you've never read that first chapter, that's there. So I think Lowen does the same thing yeah. in, in Lies My Teacher Told mm -hmm. Me. And so, I mean, your big idea, Sarah, is indigenous, we said miss in parentheses representations in U.S. history. Um, and I'm sure we probably get more misrepresentations than we do um, quality representations. Get, what, what type of investigations have you done into the curriculum and other things like that? Sure. So one of the big studies that I led with my colleagues when we were still graduate students at the University of Missouri was we did a national study which is a whole other conversation of itself, graduate students doing a national study. <laughs> um, but we looked at all 50 states and Washington, D.C.'s K through 12 U.S. history standards. So we looked at all of the state standards. So we went on every state, downloaded whatever documents they had in terms of content standards for U.S. history for K-12 and analyzed those not only in terms of how much inclusion of indigenous um, content is in the standards, but in what context they're talked about or supposed, you know, and the idea is, you know, these standards, we're not sure, you can't know by looking at the standards how a teacher is going to teach them. Right. But we wanted to see, you know, what were the documents telling in terms of a story? Um, and what we found, one of the biggest things that um, maybe, you know, at this point in my career, I'm surprised, I'm not surprised when I find uh, these things is that when you looked at across the states, 90%, roughly 90% of what is included in the standards about indigenous peoples is in a pre-1900 context. Mm -hmm. So essentially, indigenous peoples are completely erased from the story of the United States after the turn of the 20th century. Interesting. So when, like in high school, that's a U.S. 2 transition. Mm -hmm. So in U.S. 2, they're kind of ignored. But in U.S. 1, they play a part Sure. So it's always, um, I have found that the story pre-1900 and what we found in the standard study was that there's a narrative of cooperation to conflict. And so the, you know, the story that the indigenous peoples were friendly with the pilgrims, for example, because we can't not have Thanksgiving. Uh, right, right. Is one of the big cooperation stories that's in these standards, 
which is not complicated. And they don't complicate what that relationship really was in the standards. It's strictly the indigenous peoples were friendly and everybody got along. And then all of a sudden, now there's a shift when the United States wants to become the United States and indigenous peoples are or portrayed as the people who are impeding the ability of the United States to become a country. And so now they're the enemy. Mm. Interesting. The a book that I read for a class recently was 1491. Mm-hmm. And uh, I personally found it amazing, particularly the, uh, the, the, the Squanto story. Because uh, I feel like there's a lot more cooler things going on than, you know, we, than we talk about. Squanto is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Like his whole backstory about, you know, being, uh, you know, being taken to Europe. I mean, he was a slave being taken to Europe and then making his way back and everything was changed. And at one point he made a power play for like to be the leader of his, uh, his, new, his new nation, which was kind of awesome. And I feel like those type of stories that are complicated um, and show like the more of like this nuanced political di- like dynamics are, are lost for those cooperation and uh, conflict stories mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really um, disturbing to me and disturbing to a number of scholars who research social studies curriculum within these contexts is how beholden the narratives are, whether it's a textbook or a state standard, in keeping to a settler colonial narrative. And by that, I mean the idea that the Europeans who came and then became Americans were always and continue to be superior in every way to the indigenous peoples of of this continent or any of the other settler nations like Australia, New Zealand. And you see that played out in the curriculum in the very essence of keeping out the complexities of people like, um, you know, um, Squanto and other indigenous leaders, because it keeps to a story that the white Europeans were smarter, more tactful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's an easier story to keep recycling than to yeah. really allow students and really anyone to really delve into how complicated the human experience is, how complicated contact was, and everything that came with it. Is there any bigger uh, narrative in U.S. history that too often is not problematized than Manifest Destiny? That, I mean, I think that's the biggest. That's, I mean, that's the foundation for which the entire U.S. myth has been created, and, you know, from Manifest Destiny to the American dream. I mean, it starts from the minute that they, they stepped foot and planted a flag. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And, and they had to keep to that story. I, I mean, the, the thing that just is amazing to me and frustrating to me about power in the ability of a dominant group that was established vis-a-vis the white Europeans who became Americans, that ability to control a story controls everything. Mm-hmm. And to recycle that through schooling maintains that power dynamic. And so much of the curriculum seems so dependent. You know, the textbooks um, 
you know, teachers get, the standards that are created is so dependent on that narrative that I'm sure for some teachers, it's hard to even think how to decenter that narrative and tell a new and tell a more complex new story that puts indigenous people's perspectives and histories. Uh, and I say history is plural because I feel like too often we just talk about Native Americans as if it's a single group. Um, right. which is another big problem. Michael, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you feel, how do you feel like your textbooks and standards have, have represented indigenous histories? I feel like we, uh, like our textbooks only touch upon uh, the Native Americans when the Europeans are interacting with them. Mm. We never have a, you know, a focus on what life is like there until we're talking about like the West and how the, the Americans are expanding it and what the changes. So I feel like, yeah, they're, they're often they often are neglected until there's a battle or until they're being <laughs> right or until mm-hmm. they're being moved out from their from their lands. And there I mean, there are so many different nations. So it's, it's difficult to do that to like give like a, a true story of like all the different nations within the U.S. But I feel like, yeah, we do a pretty, pretty terrible job. And I think I think going along with that is the notion of the plurality of indigenous nations that were here. You know, before the Europeans came and invaded and then created their settlements and then et cetera, moving to the United States, the idea of presenting the idea of genocide to students and to teachers and really, you know, even at the Thanksgiving dinner table talking about the context of how our nation became our nation via a genocide story is really hard to <laughs> is really hard to grapple with because of this idea that the United States has always been a nation of freedom, democracy, etc. You know this tale that that we weave as a nation, and it conflicts with the realities of what happened. And we're very protective of our national story in in showing us as you know not you know, the great men or the, the, the great people, I think is really difficult. And I think it's because it goes to identity, right? I think so many um, Americans today still, you know, it's kind of the, I mean, it's, that's our, the origin story that's taught in school. I say are like a white kind of middle-class origin story that exists. And so when that's complicated, some people find it, I don't know if it's threatening to their identity, but what it is, is um, an in, we, too many people have an inability to, wrestle with the complexity. They just want the simple story of progress the Amer- of the American story. Right. Yeah. There's there's a quote it's uh the and I forget who I forget who it's from. It's uh the past is a foreign nation. They do things differently there. And I feel like when we talk about our past like we are or the you know my students they see themselves as US at all times. And so it's very difficult for them to make criticism because they feel like they're criticizing the U.S. And I feel like we really do need to treat the past as a separate entity, not that we're dismissing it, you know? Yeah, I think it's interesting, too. I just came back from a conference in Hawaii. And this idea that history is the past, when I think about the communities that I work with and and the questions that I raise about, you know, indigenous people's presentations in U.S. history curriculum, so much of the history is still present. Mm -hmm. Because I think about being in Hawaii just last month, and the nation of Hawaii was invaded. It's a sovereign nation. You know, the queen was deposed by gunpoint by the U.S. military. And so 
the past is very much still present walking down the streets of Honolulu. And so it's how do we, you know, how do we make, how do we bring that into our classrooms that the past is not just the past, the past is present as well. So I think that's the question. How do we, how do we deal with the indigenous, not deal with the indigenous people, (laughs) but how do we treat the indigenous people better in our, in our courses? Well, I think we need to deal with ourselves and by ourselves, I speak from a perspective as a non-indigenous person of predominantly Western European ancestry. So, you know, I think we, we have to, we have to, we have to deal with ourselves. We have to educate ourselves and raise questions about where we came from and how we got to where we are. Um, I, I don't see it as the job of indigenous peoples to teach us, although they have very, they have, a, they have very many things to teach us. It's not their job to correct us. We have to correct ourselves if that makes sense. And, and by being open to criticism of not only our past, but our present and, and asking ourselves tough questions and working in concert with each other to find a way forward to unravel this settler colonialism and be honest and truthful about what needs to be done in order to be a part of decolonization. What, you know, we can't just say that we're in favor of it if we're not willing to actually do it. And it's kind of the the hypocrisy of how Americans need to deal with colonization as an issue. We, we out of one side of our historical mouth, we, we talk about colonies in a negative sense. And then out of the other side, we ignore colonization um, that we've been involved with, even changing curriculum, um, not using the word colonization or imperial now in some Texas, if you, the Texas controversies in the standards and textbooks have tried to move away from those words. And, you know, I'll tell you, if you want to start anywhere, just start talking to Sarah more because <laughs> I, I guess that should be. I've been working on a project with Sarah, and, you know, I just feel like every time I, I get to, I reflect so much what it meant for me growing up as a, you know, white male in, in Oklahoma. How much do I really understand about, you know, there's so many indigenous peoples in Oklahoma. How much do I really understand about the, 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 the decisions we make in the state, how the histories are, are taught in Oklahoma history classes, and then just the, the privileges I have for in, in kind of a daily experiences. And I think that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and so talk to Sarah. But for teachers that can't talk to Sarah, because we can't all do that. <laughs> what, what she's are, only one person. What are, what are some other um, ideas you have for, for us to start to better represent indigenous perspectives and histories? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things is that for many of us, um, you know, whether it's Oklahoma, North Carolina, Washington, you know, so many places across this country, schools and teachers are near um, indigenous communities. And so reaching out to communities to talk about, you know, what, this is what my curriculum, you know, kind of outlines. Is there something I can add? Are there ways that I can bring this to a place-based conversation so my students can begin to think and talk critically about who we are, where we came from, and provide perspectives from the local indigenous communities? Uh, you know, there's some great films out there. I think one of the big things I found working with teachers and pre-service teachers is just how much content knowledge we need to 
teach for ourselves this, you know, right. this self-learning. And so going out and getting some books and I know one that's coming out in October, it's really amazing. I've read it twice already because I got an advanced copy. I was, I was blessed to be given an advanced copy. The book is called All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans by mm. Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz and Dina Helio Whitaker. And it's just great. It's amazing content written in a way that's accessible. Um, and stories and information that we just don't, we don't talk about enough or don't talk about it all, for example. And Roxanne Dunbar, am I getting her name correct, right? Yeah. Um, she wrote an indigenous people's history, which just to even having, you know, Howard Zen's chapter in your classroom, having her book available in your classroom. And even if you can't read the whole thing, your students could use it as a resource. As you look at different historical events, you could make sure that those perspectives you look up in there. Okay. How is, what are different native American perspectives on this historical event or era and, and allow that to kind of you know, decenter the curriculum around that narrative that's often in textbooks and standards. Mm -hmm. And there's some great um, curricular materials on the Museum of the American Indian, uh, the Smithsonian's. They've really done quite a lot of work to create curricular materials. So that's a great website if te that teachers can go to as well to, to find more information and lesson ideas. I know that Sheg has a, my, some of my colleagues have been using a, a Sheg assignment that I forget which one it is. I think it might be over the battle of little bighorn that it actually does bring voices into it. And mm -hmm. then it shows kind of like, I think it's someone, it's a letter to, and I forget which president it is. Um, but it's a letter to the president and you kind of like by reading the letter, by reading the response, uh, you actually get a much larger story and you start to see some of the hypocrisies in it, which I feel is, it's important. And Sheg is the Stanford History Education Group. Um, and so we can link all of those sources on our show notes for everybody um, to make sure they get those. Going from this place where we have these myths about uh, the, indigenous, the indigenous peoples and realizing that it's going to take time and it's also going to rattle some feathers. <laughs> is that? No, it's true, but... People are going to be very upset. Yeah. I mean, they're upset. People are going to get upset at the idea of you challenging anything about right. the United States. Do you have any, like, any, um, any ideas that you have to lessen that? Let, allow teachers to, to, to take that jump and teach, teach the content. Um, sure. It's an uncomfortable space, you know yeah. what I mean? Because you're taking a risk. Well, I think there's a couple of things within that question. Um, and this is something I talk with my pre-service teachers about quite a bit. Um, this this notion that everything needs to be comfortable uh, is is problematic in our educational system. That we need to make everything digestible and okay uh, when it's not okay. And so, making being becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think, is something that teachers need to begin to reflect on and think about and have conversations together. Whether it's within the idea of of including counter narratives within the presentation of indigenous peoples or racism or colonialism or you know etc fill in the gap the 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 list of topics for social studies there and so one of the things i i think about too because i i live this every day and there's a lot of uncomfortable things that i read and think about and write about um that reflection and having 
as much information as I can possibly find to talk through why it's important to present this information. And so I think about my elementary pre-service teachers meeting with their principals to talk about presenting Thanksgiving in a different way than is normally done, you know, not doing the play the way the play has been done in the past and creating that toolbox of information that you can bring with you. You're armed as the expert of your classroom to be able to have a productive dialogue about why why these lessons are important to do um, instead of going and flying off the cuff and doing it and then getting in trouble. Because I honestly understand, especially with new, newer, younger teachers, the I- idea of getting in yeah. trouble scares them. It, it's, and it, I, I completely understand that. But we need to have conversations in teacher ed and within schools about how to, how to help each other and support each other in mm-hmm. our self-learning and in our dialogues with each other, curriculum writers, principals, school districts, parents, about why we are the experts in the room and why our cur- curricular decision-making is armed with all of these great resources and that we need to, we need to do this in our classrooms. And I'll, I'll also add, you know, if you're class, if you're, the way you teach history in a class is to investigate kind of like a historian, right? Um, yeah. We're not asking you to make anything up. This is about <laughs> bringing in perspectives. And so if your class is about studying primary sources and primary documents, and stuff like that, it's a hard case for anyone else to make that you shouldn't use that document that's historically sure. accurate and part of the sure. story. And so I think one thing I've said is, and this is just, I think, often good teaching anyway, is you don't have to tell the narrative or the story. You let students do Absolutely. that. And they're, and they're very good at doing it if you put good sources in them and you regularly take a critical lens. And I think that's just a good approach in general. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Dan. And I think one of the things about the C3 framework uh, and this idea of an inquiry arc is putting putting everything in the hands of students. And then if someone says, well, why did you have that conversation? Well, a student brought it up and I'm not going to not allow my students to share what they found. And so kind of flipping the script in that way is also a strategy. That it's the students who found, who found this information and brought up these questions, not the other way around. Right. And if you do not know what C3 and the inquiry <laughs> arc are... Check out episode 10. Check out episode 10 with <laughs> Kathy Swan. Uh, well, th- thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Where, where can our listeners find your work online? So I, I keep my academia.edu page pretty well stocked with my, my writings and my presentations. So that's a great place to start. But I also am a big fan of emails, so they're welcome to contact me anytime. Um, should we tell them your Twitter handle too? That- absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're. I, I sometimes just send Sarah stuff on Twitter too. So you're. Tw- what, what are your emails and Twitter handles if you're okay sharing those? Sure. My email is s b as in as in Beth s five one eight zero at psu dot edu. And my Twitter is at sbshear, S-H-E-A-R. Fantastic. And, and just thanks again for, for joining us. And, and we hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank you, guys. This was great. Thank you. 
And listeners, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education. Check out some of our uh, our back episodes on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. And until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs>